0: Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew 16. Continuing with this last uh, unexpected follow-up to Peter's great confession, we're looking again at this last aspect, this prophesied coming. We're spending a lot of time on it because it's difficult to wrap your minds around. Um, Last week we took a good long look at the coming of the Son of Man. And first we traced it back to its Old Testament roots in Daniel 7 and found that the term is associated with the judgment of the rulers of this world and the establishment of the universal, never-ending kingdom of God. In Matthew, without fail, Jesus applies it to judgment on the wicked Jewish rulers of his day and the subsequent establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And now Jesus gives us this prophecy here in Matthew sixteen twenty-eight that we looked at some last week, we'll touch on it more today. Truly I say unto you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When and in what way did or has the Son of Man come into his kingdom? Has it happened sometime in the past? Or is it something that he's talking about, he's looking forward to? And views vary from commentator to commentator. Some of you read commentaries along with me as we preach through these books. If you'll notice, there is no consensus whatsoever on what this is talking about. And this morning, we're going to apply a five-point test. Isn't that a Calvinistic thing to do? A five-point test. uh, To the most common suggestions of what what he means when he says that the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, which are uh, the mountain of transfiguration, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit coming in power on the day of Pentecost, The final judgment or bodily return of Christ and then the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I save it for last. The logical order would put to flip the last two, but I save it for last because it's the one that I've landed on and we're going to touch on it today and then we're going to be back here next week and flesh it out a little bit more. We're not in a hurry to get through Matthew. I love Matthew. Alright, so let's begin with this five-point test for Matthew sixteen twenty-eight, Son of Man coming into his kingdom. I'm applying this five-point test to say these things have to be true about the event for it to fit what this coming of the Son of Man is. So the first category, the first two questions have to do with timestamp tests. One of, one of those is in Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the first two tests are simply some are still alive or have not been martyred by the time the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. And also some already are dead or have been martyred before he comes into his kingdom. You say, well, why do you add the or have been martyred? It just says they won't taste death. Well, look at the context in Matthew 16. Back up just a few verses. Matthew 16, 24 through 28, where it tells, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life... For my sake we will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom." This seems to be an encouragement for the disciples to endure through persecution for two different reasons, doesn't it? One, those who die in the path of faithfulness will be rewarded by Jesus. Sometimes we do. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. It's not over for us. Even if we're martyred, there's reward, there's profit doesn't profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. But if we die in the path of faithfulness, there's reward for us. That's an encouragement to endure through persecution. And the other encouragement is that the mission will not fail. That, I think that's what he's telling us here. That there, there will be some standing here that will not taste death. You won't be martyred and you'll see the Son of Man coming to his kingdom. All of his foes will be vanquished and the kingdom will be established in earnest. That kingdom that he told us about, that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. It's not yet, but it's coming. And some of you will be alive to get some of this, to taste those promises. I believe that's what's going on. And one of the reasons I I think it fits well, but also uh, it follows the flow of Matthew 16, 18 through 28. So, uh, I'm sorry. Not Matthew sixteen, eighteen through twenty-eight, but Matthew ten, five through seven. Turn to it with me to Matthew ten five through seven. It fits perfectly with what we find in the missionary discourse. Matthew ten five. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into the city, any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Skip now down to ten, fourteen through 18. But whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust for your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. There's judgment there like Daniel 7 judgment, isn't there? Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles." Skip now down to 10.21. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will raise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Verse 38 and 39, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So you see this timestamp stamp again. In your, in your generation, like while you're still alive, you won't have finished going through all of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Be encouraged by that. Some of you won't die. You take up your cross and follow me. Some of you will. But you will got your reward. Some of you will make it all the way until the coming of the Son of Man and you'll see the arrival of the kingdom of God. You see that? It, it fits, doesn't it? Back to back, you see one in light of the other and all the same themes are present, even the same exact language. So, this timestamp stamp is a remarkably persistent element to, in allusions to Daniel 7. We see a timestamp in 11, 19 through 24, 12, 39 through 42, 23, 34 through thir- 24, 24, and then in 26, 64. But we don't need them as extra tests because they add nothing more restricting than our text this morning. For this to be the arrival of the kingdom of the Son of Man. the the Son of Man arriving in His kingdom, we know that some of those disciples have not been martyred and some of them have been martyred. Do you follow those two tests? Why? That I think that they're necessary for this to match? Okay. Category two is the Son of Man tests. Some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. So the third test is It involves judgment of his enemies. The righteous and the wicked will be separated. That's a consistent theme when we see the language of the coming of the Son of Man. In fact... Coming in judgment is what all of the apocalyptic language is about. That there's going to be judgment on this generation. That there's going to be destruction coming upon them. He's going to be coming in the clouds of glory, the stars falling from the sky. That is the language used in the Old Testament for judgment on the enemies of God. It's consistent. So we're thinking of it literally, but it's apocalyptic poetic language. And you see it every time this is mentioned. So, now Jesus is shockingly and offensively applying this to the Jewish leaders of his day. John the Baptist prefigures it in Matthew 3, calling the Pharisees and Sadducees snakes and generations of vipers who shall warn them to flee from the wrath that's to come, right? He warns them that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from the stones. You think that because you're Jews, you're God's people, God can raise up from stones children to Abraham. You're under the wrath and judgment of God. It's coming for you, just like it did all the Gentile nations before you. That was the warning of John the Baptist. And he even tells them his winnowing fork is in hand. Remember that? He's ready to, to gather his wheat into the barns and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Matthew, and then Jesus comes on the scene, preaches the Sermon on the Mount. What does he tell them? Except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't even see the kingdom of God. You won't be around for its arrival. Right? And at the end of it, he says, at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. I'm the determining factor of who gets in and who gets out, of who's sifted and who's not. And uh, he would, uh, we could chase that thread throughout Matthew. I was tempted to do so, but I'm going to spare you. But I do want to highlight a couple of the most obvious ones. Turn to Matthew 11, 18 through 24. So we saw John the Baptist warning of that judgment. We've seen Jesus warning of that judgment that's going to come. And now we see this Son of Man language coming up in Matthew 11, 18 through 24. Speaking of both John and Jesus unsurprisingly. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come both eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they wouldn't listen to either one. That's the point, right? Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they didn't repent at the preaching of the Son of Man. Woe unto you, Horazine, Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, these Old Testament Gentile cities on which judgment did come, than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven Will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, in your presence, it would have remained to this day. And we know what happened to Sodom, right? Nevertheless, I say it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Do you see that? Son of man and coming judgment. Look at twelve forty uh, through 42, just one page over. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation in the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and yet something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up and judge with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So there's judgment again. Son of man and judgment on you because you didn't repent. See it? Son of man judgment every time. The wheat and the tares, the son of man, the one that plants the good seed is the son of man and the bad seed is the enemies and the wheat and the tares, it's going to be brought up and it's going to be, the wheat is going to be gathered and the tares are going to be taken out and burned up. Son of man in 13. So you see it in 11, you see it in 12, you see it in 13. You think we should pay attention when you see something that consistent every single time it's brought up? And then the, and our verse right before, the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with the angels and repay every man according to his deeds. Judgment. You can't have the son of man coming into his kingdom without there being judgment of his enemies. That's not a thing. Does that make sense? So there's your third test. You have to have judgment judgment of the enemies. And it will be a spectacle that's seen by all. Nobody can possibly miss the event. There's other places we can go besides Matthew 24, but turn to Matthew 24, 27-34. through 34. This is one of the most obvious. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Is it going to be secret? Is lightning secret? What about, like, did you see that secret lightning strike? Yeah. No lightning. Wow. Everybody sees it. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Here's this apocalyptic language again. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of heaven will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch is already become tender and puts forth its leaves, then you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize that He is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you that this generation, how close? This generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. You've got another timestamp, and the timestamp is related to judgment and a judgment that everybody sees. Does that make sense? And. Lastly, the reign of the Son of Man will ensue in some new sense. We know that, but in, in some sense, because we know that in some sense the kingdom of of heaven of God already is. Remember, He says, "If I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you." It already had been, but there's going to be a new sense. That the, this generation will not pass away, or. Some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the man, Son of Man coming into his kingdom. There's something new coming. Even though it's already... There's something new coming that's different in the arrival of the reign of the Son of Man. So, to summarize, we've got some are alive, some are dead, or some are martyred and some haven't been. There will be judgment of his enemies. It will be a spectacle seen by all. And the reign of the Son of Man will ensue in some new way. That's the five-part test. Now we want to apply this test to our five options. To the mountain of transfiguration, to the resurrection and ascension of Christ... To the uh, day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the day of Pentecost to the final judgment or the bodily return of Christ, and to 70 AD, and see which one it fits better, fits best with, actually fits with. You, how many of the, how many of these tests do you have to pass for it to be for it to fit? It's, if, you, if one of them's out, it doesn't work. It's all or nothing, isn't it? So the mountain of transfiguration. Well, why is this suggested? Before we go into applying the test. Well, the main reason it is suggested is because it's the next verse. You 16:28 you've got the son of man coming into his kingdom and then 17, 1-2, it says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up to the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments were white as light." And the mountain of transfiguration, Peter says, speaking of it in 2 Peter 1, 16-17, "...we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we received honor for he received honor and glory from God the Father when such an utterance was made by him to uh, made to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him It doesn't actually say the hear you him part, but that's what it's referring back to. So, since Peter says that God gave him this honor and he came, that the the majestic glory was, it was pronounced upon him by the majestic glory of the Father, they say, well, this seems to fit. And I see where they're coming from, don't y'all? It makes sense until you apply the test. Were some alive still? Some hadn't been martyred? Well, no, not some. Some were not alive anymore, all of them were. Right, all of them had not tasted death. The mountain of transfiguration occurred only six days later. It doesn't make sense to say some of you will not taste death till the Son of Man comes. If none of them had tasted death until the Son of Man comes, no one had been martyred. Nobody had even died yet. You see, you see the problem. And. Then you look at the Son of Man tests. Did he judge his enemies? Were the righteous and the wicked separated? No. No one was judged. Which half of Daniel 7, Son of Man prophecy, is about the judgment on the rulers of this age. It doesn't fit with what we see in Daniel 7 and it doesn't fit with any of the Son of Man language in the rest of the book of Matthew. Was the spectacle seen by all? It wasn't even seen by all of the twelve. It was only seen by three of them. And notice this, not only was it not seen by all, but look at Matthew 17, 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. We've got to rise from the dead, be ascended, presented before the Ancient of Days with a gap of extension of time given to the beast before he comes in judgment into his kingdom. Right? That's what Daniel 7 says. So he said, the son of man obviously hasn't even risen from the dead yet. He says, not only is it not seen by all, he doesn't even want it told to anybody until he's risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, when do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoke to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus, hand in hand, both of them who had warned that generation that judgment was going to come. Jesus is saying, but before the judgment comes, I actually have to die on the cross, ascend to the right hand of the throne of God and then come back in judgment on them. It's actually there in the mountain of transfiguration text. Does everybody follow that? Does that make sense? So it doesn't work. And then did the kingdom of God come in a new universal worldwide way at the mountain of transfiguration? Well, it was definitely miraculously foreshadowed that, there would, that it would happen, but there was no change. Jesus didn't even want them to tell of the event until after the resurrection, which we learned in Matthew 16, 21, and read about in 17, 9 through 13, moments before, that the Son of Man uh, had to die first and then it had to happen. So, so I would say that the mountain of transfiguration, how many did it pass of, these five, of the five-point test? It actually passed zero. It made sense on the surface until you applied these tests And you say, it doesn't pass a single one of them. So then you move to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Why is this one suggested? Well, you should know this one by now. After his resurrection, he appears to the twelve. And what does he say in the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore now and make disciples of all the nations. That's why Romans 1.4... Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why. And that we could go on and on. If you remember all the Acts text, we've done this before. We've walked through it. That was a pivotal moment. The resurrection and the ascension of Christ was huge, big time. But does Jesus fulfill the Daniel 7 prophecy of the coming of the Son of Man just because he's declared to be the Son of God? He's declared to be the Son of God, but does he fulfill the coming of the Son of Man? Well, let's apply the test. Were some still alive? Yes, in fact, all of them except for Judas was. And Judas wasn't martyred, he murdered himself. Right? So nobody had been killed for the faith yet. Were some already dead? Well, only Judas. And it seems odd that Jesus would mean all of you except Judas when he said some of you would not taste death. That doesn't seem to fit either, does it? The son of Man tests now, did he judge his enemies in his death and resurrection? Were the righteous and wicked separated? Well, in some way he judged Satan, but he didn't judge that generation. The Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are still in their prominent seats in the synagogues. They're still ruling in the temple. Uh, a fate worse than Sodom uh, had not came upon Tyre and Sidon or Capernaum or Jerusalem. It hadn't came upon that generation. Was this a spectacle seen by all? Well, no. Jesus only appeared to his closest disciples and his brother James. Slightly more than 500 people total. There was no public event about which everyone knew. It didn't shine like lightning from the east to the west. And then, did the kingdom of God come in a new universal way? Well, I would say yes. In some sense it did. I would say that uh, Satan has been defeated, that Jesus has been declared the son, of, uh, the son of God with power. He's taken possession of the world from Satan himself. Some might say that this gets three out of five. I would say it actually gets about one and a half out of five. But it doesn't get five out of five. Right? If you say, well, some are alive and some are dead, and you say, I don't think it's martyred there. I'll, I'll give you three and a half out of five. Three and a half out of five ain't five, is it? So it fails the test as well. And now the Holy Spirit coming in power on the day of Pentecost. Why is that suggested? Well, turn to Acts eight. He tells the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which happened at Pentecost, Right? And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. There's something new that's happening when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. And they're going to be witnesses not just in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but all the way to the ends of the earth. There's something new. Makes sense, doesn't it? and you, you look at Acts 2 1-12 through when the day of Pentecost had come they all spoke in tongues and everyone heard in their own language and they asked what the miracle, they said what does this miracle mean and Peter answers and says this Jesus that God raised up again to which we are all witnesses therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit has poured forth that which you see and hear for it was not David who ascended into heaven but he himself says the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that Jesus whom you crucified. Something huge happened here, didn't it? And there's something that he's enthroned, the Spirit's given, the power in the church, the kingdom is manifesting itself in a new and a distinct way. But is that the coming of the Son of Man from Daniel 7? Apply the tests. Were some still alive, we got the same thing. Some still alive and some dead, some martyrs, some not. You only have Judas dead, still. I would still say it fails both of those tests. At least it only passes them kind of. One's dead and everybody else is alive. Did he judge his enemies? Were the righteous and wicked separated? Again, no. There is no judgment against the Jews who killed Jesus. There is, in fact, an even greater extension of grace to them, an invitation to be forgiven. Peter's sermon goes on and says, when they heard this... Acts 2, 37 through 41. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for all who are far off. That's you, you Jews that are here, and all those that are far off, the Gentiles, and as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation there's an extension of time the perverse generation is still going to be with you it's going to be destroyed the perverse generation is you need to come out and be different be spared from this perverse generation because judgment is going to come upon them that's what he says So then those who had received the word were baptized and added to the church. So judgment hadn't came upon these enemies. It's still foreshadowed that it's going to come and he's extending mercy to the Jews that would still believe during that period of time that was extended. Was this a spectacle seen by all? This one fits pretty well, doesn't it? It was seen by the masses. People from every nation under the sun were there, it says. But it's not judgment with signs in the sky. So I'll give it like a half. It kind of. I can see how it kind of fits, but but not, not really. And the apocalyptic language of judgment doesn't fit at all. And then did the kingdom of God come in a new and universal way? Again, I would say yes. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church was able to begin advancing. The church was growing in and alongside the synagogue system. But the church was indwelled by the Holy Spirit and was a manifestation of the kingdom of God. So I would say that this one has been our best one yet. But it still doesn't really fit the timestamps in my mind. And if you, uh, if you believe it does, you know, you might have three and then two kind of but not really's. At best, you're going to say three but two kind of and not really's. If you do give it the timestamps, So, then we look at the, the final judgment or bodily return of Christ. Well, why is this suggested? Well, the final judgment is the only concept many people have of the kingdom of God. To them, this is the Satan's world. I'm terrified by that thought, but Jesus will come one day and take me home, and then it will all be not, you know. Uh, That's kind of where people are. I made that up right off the fly. (laughs) But you know, they, they believe it's Satan's world. There's no kingdom of God on earth right now. There's no advancing of the people of God, the church going forth. There's no idea of the church militant. There's no... His kingdom is forever idea. There's no progress. There's no leaven running through the lump. There's no mustard seed growing until all the nations of the world are blessed by it. That's not in their mind. So in their mind, everything's terrible, but one day Jesus will come and he'll crush everything and he'll establish his kingdom. And that's only a future event. That's all they can get to. They do not understand the concept of gradualism. And thus they presuppose that this is Satan's world and that Jesus will return at once and fix everything. And all we do is wait for that. People tend to ignore context and interpret things without thinking about history or querying, asking questions to the text. They hear judgment language and they go straight to the final judgment, which is a thing. But let's apply the tests. Were some still alive? Some of you will not taste death. All of them have tasted death. What does that do? It actually destroys any possibility that he came, he's coming in his kingdom. This is a future thing. The time alone does, right? The son of Man tests, did or will he judge his enemies? Will the righteous and wicked be separated? Well, in a way, yes, but not the actual cities that rejected him like Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum and, and Jerusalem. The people will be judged by him, but not the cities destroyed with this apocalyptic idea just like the cities in the Old Testament, the same idea. They will be judged, but not like that. Which it seems to be that like that is what the Son of Man language is talking about. And how that they would have taken it and what Jesus would have meant by it. And will this spectacle be seen by all? Yes. It got one there for sure, didn't it? The final coming will be seen by all. And will the kingdom of God come in a new universal worldwide way? Yes. There'll be no more sin at all. So it passes a couple of the tests... But it doesn't pass all the tests. And how many of the tests does this have to pass for it to actually fit? It has to pass them all. And that leaves us with the last one. The judgment of 70 AD. And why is this suggested? Well, let's look at the time step tests. Were some alive? Yes. Some were alive, but some had been martyred. And the ones that were still alive were still making their way through the cities of Israel, spreading the gospel... And they came and saw what Jesus had talked about in the destruction of Israel in their lifetime. They saw it then, didn't they? Peter and Andrew and one more of them, I think history tells us, was actually crucified upside down. They literally carried their cross and died on it and got their reward. But some lived and saw the judgment come on that generation of Jews. Some were alive and some had been martyred. Jesus said to the disciples, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, Take up his cross, and follow me and Now look at the Son of Man tests: Did he judge his enemies? Were the righteous and the wicked separated? Well, those Jews who embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah escaped the judgment while those who worked against the gospel message were literally burned up. Look at matthew twenty two two through three The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. That's the Jewish people. Look at verses 5 through 7. But they paid no attention and they went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. The persecution of the actual apostles. Some of those that were actually martyred. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. When did that happen, guys? 70 A.D. Matthew twenty three thirty four through 24-2. I'm going to read that. We read it last week, but I'm going to read it again. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you might fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you that all these things will come upon what? This generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house, the temple, is left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out from the temple and was going away from his disciples. And, and, and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, "Do you see all these things? Truly, I say to you, that not one stone here will be left upon another that will be not will not be torn down." Let me read a couple of excerpts from Josephus's Wars. This is, is Josephus's Wars is not Bible but it's history recording events that are actually predicted in the Bible, including the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But when the Roman soldier went in numbers into the lanes of the cities with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy, and they set fire to the houses, whether the Jews were fled or burnt, every soul of them, one or the other, they either escaped or were burnt. They made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. And truly so it happened that though these slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night and all was burning. Not only was the city set ablaze, but Josephus describes the destruction of the temple as well. While the holy house, the temple, your house is left to you desolate was on fire. Everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age, but children and old men and priests, they were all slain in the same manner. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those who were slain. One would have thought that the whole city would have been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything greater or more terrible than this noise. Was that a spectacle? Everybody could see it. The burning, the light, the whole city's on fire. Everybody sees the destruction that came upon these people. It's judgment on exactly that generation, on exactly those cities, on exactly that temple. And it's a spectacle that everybody sees from east to west and everybody, and we're still reading about it today in history books. Yeah, it fits. There was no way for it to escape notice historians of the day, both Jewish and Gentile alike, wrote of the destruction. It's still a marvel to this day. And what we read matches the apocalyptic language of Old Testament cities being destroyed perfectly. The same kind of things that happened to Old Testament cities that endured the wrath of God is exactly the kind of destruction that came upon Israel itself in 70 AD. And then now lastly, did the kingdom of God come in a new universal worldwide way? We've got four yeses that I think are pretty clear yeses. Wouldn't you all say? This one, I say yes, but it's going to take some fleshing out. And I don't want to keep you here all day long. So I'm going to save it for next week uh, and not go into it. I'm going to explain how that there's something new that happens, a new manifestation of the kingdom of God at the destruction of the old covenant. When that was ready to disappear and it's going to be done away with, what happens that's new at that time? We'll go into that next week. But for now, think of all that Jesus, this Son of Man, has accomplished. We focus on one thing and it's a glorious thing. The Son of Man, He came and He died. He, he died on the cross for our sins. Praise the Lord. We, right? I mean, what? That's, we would have no hope apart from that. But we've got to realize that there's more than just that. That encourages us. If we were Gnostics and only thought about our souls, that would encourage us. But Tommy told us not to be Gnostics last Sunday night, right? Not only... Is this Son of Man a figure who loved us so much that He died to redeem our souls? But He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and He is shaking the powers of the nations. He's vanquishing every foe. He started with Jerusalem itself and it's going to spread to the ends of the earth, guys. Judgment will come on all the enemies of God, of God and He will reign until He has put all of His enemies underneath His feet. Coming soon to all the cities near you. King Jesus. We can be encouraged. We don't have to sit around. Oh, we're going to lose this pessimistic Christianity. We're we're just going to get trodden over. It's only going to get worse and worse. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have a Savior who is risen now to reign, working through His church. When we obey Him, we cannot be stopped. Upon this rock he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Be the church militant, forgiven of your sins and dwelled by the Spirit and making progress against the powers of darkness. Don't be ashamed of your Lord. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we receive from it. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be faithful servants of yours. Lord, to be encouraged by these dual truths, that if we die in the path of faithfulness, that there is reward, that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This is worth dying for. But Lord, that not all of us are going to die, that you have a people that are going to be a victorious people. Lord, encourage our hearts with that. Help us build for the future, to have children, to build businesses, to make good decisions to think about future generations and not live only for this short little life and for some uh, soul-only idea in eternity. Lord, help us to have a right understanding of your kingdom and to live that out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.